listening to GP Life Hacks with Dr. David Land. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the GP Life Hacks podcast. We are talking today about starting your very first general practice registrar placement. And I'm joined by my sister, Esther, who is doing exactly that. Welcome, Esther. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. Is there anything particular that you wanted to talk about or, well, should we just chat about it? Yeah, let's just chat about it because basically I've only ever worked in the hospital. So even though I feel pretty confident in general about my clinical skills, like community GP seems pretty different. So I'm excited, but also kind of nervous. Yep. That's pretty understandable. And I think one of the things that made me pretty nervous starting off was the fact that, oh man, these are like set timed appointments. So I kind of feel like I have to come up with the answer after 15 or a 30 minute appointment and the spotlight's on me. So how do I do that? Totally. And my short answer to that is basically with anything in general practice, follow up, follow up, follow up. Uh, that's your biggest tool, resource, weapon, whatever you want to call it in general practice is basically every single patient you see, invite them to be followed up. Don't even make it a question. Literally just say, I care about you. I want to make sure we're still going okay. Let's see each other in a week or two's time. So you're starting off in a general practice. And I guess one of the other key things that's a bit difficult with general practice is literally they're all different from each other. And it's very non-standardized in terms of what kind of patients that you see, how big your practice is, what kind of demographics you deal with. So it can often be a bit hard to figure out the best way to jump into it. Totally. Like whenever I talk to my like non-GP specialist registrars of the hospital, and then they'll try to tell me like, oh yeah, you'll have a great time in community. It'll be like this or that. And I'm just like, you do know these are all different small businesses, right? And you've only worked, <laughs> and especially if you're in Adelaide, like you've only ever worked in one of the three major hospitals here where it's relatively standardized. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and I think one of the other things that made me nervous, and to be honest, it probably makes most GPs nervous, is that sort of just constantly running behind because you want to be thorough, you want to be safe, you want to do most by your patients. And, you know, there's some things like you just, there's no way you can deal with somebody with major depression in just 15 minutes alone. That's just not possible. So if you want to do a good job, you're going to run a bit over. Is that make your day going to blow out? So time management certainly is something that makes us all in general practice a bit nervous. That's something I'm very nervous about. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So my big tip from the get-go is it doesn't matter what practice you're at or what the demographic is or how they're otherwise different from each other. The main way that they'll be the same, to be quite honest, is it'll all be electronic practice software record keeping. If you master that and you optimize that, that's definitely a way you can save time and be more efficient in your workplace. So in the lead up to my general practice placement, one of the things I did, which completely changed the game, was to make templates on a Word document. Like, I know I'm going to see a whole bunch of urties today. I know I'm going to see a bunch of back pains. I know I'm going to see people that have low mood. So how do I usually write them up? So I literally in advance had a written up template of these would be the most common presenting features. These would be the tests or examinations I do. And this would be the management. And I'd have that saved. Some practice software, you can even have that saved and embedded in the software and you press a hotkey and it all just comes up. So if you can do that, great. But if not, there's nothing to stop you having a Word document that you have on your desktop and you copy and paste that into the notes and amend as you need be. That certainly helps a lot in terms of time management. The other thing that helps is with when you need to refer a patient, again, all the letters these days to other specialties is done via the computer. So if you've got your note all ready to go, you can copy and paste that into a referral letter and then go. Bam, fantastic. Other things to sort out in your first week to succeed is have a clear idea of who your supervisor is. I mean, that'll be pretty obvious. They'll introduce themselves and say, hey, I'm your supervisor. But just have a clear idea of what your pathways are for assistance if you need right from the start. And what I mean by that is basically know who you can call uh, if you're not sure about something. And there'll be plenty that you won't be sure about, certainly in your first week. That's just normal behavior. I'd be almost more worried as a supervisor if you were sure of everything in your first week. That would make me as a supervisor more nervous. So have a clear understanding of who your supervisor is, how you can get hold of them, usually by the phone, but there's nothing to stop you, particularly in the first week or the first couple of weeks of saying, I'm really not sure. Do you mind actually physically coming in when you're free and eyeballing this patient as well? No harm in doing that. And that's a very safe thing to do. And so I guess with that in mind, hmm. it's also useful to talk to your primary supervisor about if there's days where they're not there, um, 
who's the next point of call. You're right on the money, Esther, and that's exactly what I was getting at because inevitably they'll have days off and things like that. So just have a clear understanding conversation right from the start. If you're not here on site and I need assistance, who else can I call in the practice? And it's their duty as your supervisor to have a clear answer to that. So just make sure that's involved right from the get-go. A similar question related to that. What's Mm. the kind of etiquette around approaching other GPs at the practice who, for example, have like an area of interest that your main supervisor doesn't have that you think you'd benefit from? So for example, if my main supervisor doesn't see much gynecology, but one of the other GPs there um, has training in doing long-acting contraception and I wanted to learn from them. What would you recommend as a good way to approach that? So that's a fantastic question. Number one, I think that's very reasonable. You'll find that most general practices, they're almost kind of like a family. So everybody's, if not your dad or your mum, like your uncle or your aunt as well. So everybody helps everybody out and the supervisors know and expect that as well. I would just literally have that conversation with the supervisor day one. Hey, say if I've got a question about X, Y, Z, I noticed that this other doctor at the practice has a special interest in that. Do I still call you in the first instance or shall I call them? You'll probably get the answer. Yes, call me first and we can delegate to them as per the special interest or feel free to call them ahead or neither of us really mind. Go right ahead and do as you feel in case by case. So I think the most important thing there is having conversation with both your supervisor and that particular special interest doctor right from day one or you know in your first week. While we're on that topic, I think the other key thing to surviving, particularly in your first week of general practice, but actually for your whole general practice career is just how you phrase things as well. General practice as a specialty and as a profession, a really key important aspect is you have to be really good at communicating with people. Mm. And, you know, that can take some practice, that can take some practice in front of the mirror even, that can need some preparation of what you're going to say before you say it. But certainly there's certain key phrases I've learned along the way uh, that I mentioned to my registrars. How do I ask for real-time advice from my supervisor without it being awkward for myself or the patient or without the patient having a lack of faith in my abilities as a doctor. Do you ever wonder about that? Um, Yeah, I am wondering about how to do that differently in general practice. Yeah. So the interesting thing about general practice is exactly as you said, Esther, it's it's an interesting career where right from the get-go, day one as a new registrar, you're given this autonomy because, you know, with lots of these patients, you'll be the only one that directly deals with them. Your supervisor won't even see them or examine them. And that's quite different from other specialties where, you know, if it's a patient under your boss's bed card, they'll round on them at some point or there'll be at some point where they'll be directly involved in that patient's care. Mm. So there's certainly a lot of autonomy, but a lot of responsibility right from the beginning. And it can be kind of intimidating uh, thinking about how you're going to mitigate that. My big advice would be, again, it's all back to how you phrase things. So right from the get-go, there's a good way to phrase things and a not so ideal way to phrase things with most things. And a key one that I find, you know, medical students and junior doctors uh, struggle with all the time is just even introducing yourself. Like the number of times I have really good medical students introduce themselves to the patient as, hi, I'm Michael, I'm just a medical student. And scarily, it's the same with a lot of my new registrars as well. They say, hi, I'm Michael. I'm just the registrar. For one, the patient doesn't quite necessarily understand what a registrar is. So it's kind of a superfluous (laughs) comment. And also you're kind of downgrading yourself from the start. I mean, take ownership, man. Like you're this patient's doctor. So act like it right from the start. Mm -hmm. So in terms of introducing yourself, I would go away before your first day and have a think about how you're going to do it. I found one that worked for me to take or leave is, hi, I'm David. I am a new doctor to the practice. I've just transferred from the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Mm-hmm. And that gives a lot of context. You know, you're admitting implicitly that, okay, I'm new to this practice. But at the same time, you're also in that same five seconds also getting the patient to understand these are my strengths. Like, damn, I've been a hospital doctor. So I'm really good at the acute stuff right now. So I'm going to make sure you stay safe. Mm. So have a think about how you're going to, Esther, how you're going to introduce yourself right from the get-go, right from day one. (laughs) The other phrase to think about is how you are going to call your supervisor for assistance uh, when that needs be. I'm not even saying if because it should be a when, when you call your supervisor because in your first week, you should be calling pretty much for every patient, even if it's just a quick conversation and you're on the right track. So the phrase that I found for me to take or leave is, oh, well, from what you've told me, I think that this is what's going on. 
Or, you know, if you're not 100% sure what's going on, I'm quite happy that it's not these dangerous red flag things and you can list them off. I'm quite happy or I'm reasonably convinced that you're not having a heart attack. However, I would like to get a second opinion if it's all right with you. I'm just going to make a quick phone call. Mm. And the patient thinks, wow, this is great. I'm getting two for the price of one here. <laughs> Amazing. And that's just such a better way, I think, of doing it than saying, oh, I'm not sure. I have no idea what's going on with you. So I'm just a registrar and I'm now going to call my senior. Mm. Yeah, all in the phrasing. Yeah, I've, I've adopted similar phrasing um, this year in my practice of like, I want to check with my senior colleagues that they're happy with my plan. Yeah, absolutely. Or they agree this is appropriate. Absolutely. And as you get better and better in it, but even potentially if you're feeling reasonably comfortable doing this in your first week, you can even say to your patients, look, from what you've told me, this is my impression. This is what I think it is, or this is what I don't think it is. Having said that though, I want to get a second opinion and make sure mm. we do right by you. Yeah. And you're fine with most of these ones. You actually knew the answer all along. And then when you get that confirmation from the scene, you're like, that's, you know, that's, that's really reassuring from the patient that you, you've got two opinions that align. So yeah, go for it. Mm. Think your thoughts out aloud. The patient really loves being involved in the thought process. It makes it a team effort as opposed to you being the doctor demanding everything and them being a patient uh, being stood over. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about how to start off. My only other tips mm -hmm. would be the main ones would be introduce yourself in person to every single other person in that building, in particular, yeah. the reception staff, because everybody is an as equal and important part of the team. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if you're a new registrar, getting yourself acquainted and getting in with the practice staff can make all the difference and they'll go out of their way to help you. And, you know, in terms of time management stuff, they'll just make your life so much easier. Mm. So those would be my main tips. Think about your phrasing before you even start off with get templates and get friendly with your staff. Simple as that. Mm. So that's how I would survive my first week. In the rest of these episodes coming up, we'll be focusing on some key parts of evidence-based general practice, uh, but I'll just go through a couple more broad strokes and we might call it a day after that. So in terms of how else to prepare for your first week of first term general practice, you may be inclined to do some pre-reading. You may not, and that's also cool, but if you are, uh, it's kind of hard to figure out like, well, I've never done it before, so how would I know what to look up? And, you know, general practice, it's like the combination of all the other specialties. So, there's just so much to look up. Mm. Well, the, the cool little secret to start off with is you can actually just make a algorithm flow diagram like you do with any other bit of medicine. You've got all conditions right at the stop of your algorithm, top of your algorithm, I meant to say. Uh, and then thereafter, you can divide it into there's acute stuff and there's chronic stuff. And then you can further subdivide. And, you know, while general practice is quite vast and diverse... If you think about it, there's only so many chronic conditions and variations of in the world out there. So, if you can, across your entire general practice training, get really comfortable with how to deal with asthma, how to deal with ischemic heart disease, and in that same bracket, I put ischemic heart disease, you know, all the metabolic stuff, ischemic heart disease, obesity, high cholesterol and hypertension. I kind of put that all together because it's all the same treatment anyway that all leads to the same outcomes. Mm. So, if you can deal with asthma, ischemic heart disease, heart failure, osteoporosis, COPD, and diabetes, you're pretty set. Hey, I mean, can you ask to think of any other chronic conditions out there that's kind of not necessarily covered by that umbrella? I'll be honest, I was in that category of people who did not know what to even try and pre-read. So, you've already given me a good list to start <laughs> with. So, I've got nothing to add. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Uh, and the only one I would, I just thought of then, and I'm a bit embarrassed that I forgot it, is mental health. Mm, of course. And, you know, as a general practitioner, you are absolutely at the forefront of diagnosis and treatment of depression and anxiety. So, if you go away and read about those seven conditions, then you're pretty set for most of general practice, which is kind of sweet. Uh, that'll obviously take time though. And then the question is, you know, how do you try to cram that all in in your first week? Because on day one, you'll be seeing patients probably. And I would say in your first week, make it easy on yourself. I would say for those conditions, look up the proper resources. And while we're on the note of resources, my big tip for registrars starting in general practice is I pretty well in my training only ever use three resources. And that 
really set me in good stead for my career. The main one was actually the therapeutic guidelines, the Australian therapeutic guidelines, which most people have electronic access to, ETG, the electronic Mm -hmm. therapeutic guidelines. And you'll be amazed from a general practice point of view how damn useful that is. Because you would have thought being therapeutic guidelines, you almost think of it as sort of a cousin of the Australian Medicines Handbook. So like these are the drugs and the doses to give, but it's actually quite a bit more than that. I find in a very neat couple of sentences, they say these are the common features that you need to look out for in terms of diagnosing this disease. Then I think what they do, which is absolutely fantastic, and this is a key point to being a great general practitioner, is being in the mindset that with all conditions dealt with in general practice, people get too fixated on the drugs. Oh yeah, you have asthma, so you need to be on this puffer. Oh, you have heart disease, you need to be on this tablet. And that's how, unfortunately, we've kind of trained the population uh, of the world to think is that life is solved by pills. Mm. But we know as good medical practitioners, that's only half of it. So I want you all to get into the mindset from day one of your general practice training that every condition has non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatments, Mm -hmm. okay? So what I think the therapeutic guidelines does really well is it talks about both. And I was actually shocked at how well it puts it. So you'll say, you know, for, for diabetes, this is the treatment algorithm. If the numbers are this or the presentation is this, then these are the lifestyle things that you would do to treat it. And these are the targets in terms of follow-up blood tests that you would aim for. However, if they're beyond this and the numbers look like this, this is a stepwise pathway on adding medications on top of that. So start off with this medication and follow up in this time period. And if that doesn't work, start off with this medication as well. And I thought that was done so very well. So my big advice is if you don't know what to pre-read, I would start with the therapeutic guidelines and literally just type into the search bar, asthma management Mm -hmm. and see what comes up and literally in a couple paragraphs per each of these seven conditions they'll actually give you a pretty good way to go which is great so that's the chronic stuff there's obviously the cool part about general practice is you deal with the acute stuff as well in terms of the acute stuff new registrars tend to be quite good at that i find in my experience uh, because they've just come from hospital they've just done an ed term so they absolutely know what the red flags look like and they absolutely know when somebody should be dealt with in an emergency department and call the ambulance accordingly. So I won't talk too much about that. Other than the things that I will say is have a mind of how you would treat common acute conditions that don't need to go to hospital. Mm. And some key ones there are acute or otherwise acute on chronic back pain. Yeah. Have a think about how you would deal with that. And I'll give you a hint. Again, the answer is not just pharmacology, but also non-pharmacological options. Mm-hmm how you would deal with an acute upper respiratory tract infection. And again, I'll give you another hint. The answer is not to give everybody antibiotics necessarily. Yeah. So have a think about what could come through your door. And there's a good starting point. You know, lots of it is acute upper respiratory symptoms, lower back pain, acute lower back pain, and pediatric stuff. So there would be somewhere to start. But that's a lot to take in, particularly in your first week. So maybe just start off with picking three or four of those chronic conditions, typing in the search bar, asthma management, type 2 diabetes management on the therapeutic guidelines and see how you go. While we're on that topic, because I think what has created this mindset and how we've ended up as doctors pushing so many pills and training the public to just be seeking pills and not being mindful of other interventions is a reluctance to advocate for lifestyle measures because I think through fear of, oh, that's going to sound like a cop out to the patient Mm. or the patient has communicated to me, doctor, you don't know what you're talking about. I've come up with this problem and all you're telling me to do is just like lie down. That's terrible advice. I could have just done that at home, you know, type thing. Mm. Yeah. So it's created this unfortunate reluctance and this this mindset that as a doctor, I'm not really doing anything as a GP if I'm not giving the medicine. And that's certainly the way the patient is acting. And again, it all comes down to, you know, other than follow everybody up, my other big number two principle of being a good general practitioner is it's all in the phrasing, which you've heard me already say today. Mm. So have a think about how you will phrase it. Uh, because there's a big difference to saying like, oh, you're fine. You're not having a heart attack. 
can I have my money now? <laughs> mm. Versus the good news is I'm very happy that you don't have any of the life-threatening things I was talking about as soon as you said, I have a cough. So I'm very happy from the story that you're giving. It's unlikely that you've got lung cancer and that's why you've got a cough. And you find that in itself is very therapeutic. So have a think about how you're going to phrase things as good news as opposed to negative findings. And the other thing I'd say in terms of phrasing is have a think about how you would advocate for lifestyle measures. Mm. Okay. And again, I would phrase it as good news. I would literally use the word good news to start off with. The good news is while you do have diabetes, the numbers show that it's at its early stages. So, the research quite clearly shows that we don't even necessarily need to use medication at this stage. The research shows that if you do 30 minutes of brisk walking or equivalent exercise on a regular basis, your blood sugar numbers will improve and your condition will improve without us having to go down the path of all these different medications or, you know, with only a minimal amount of medication. How good is that? You ask as a rhetorical question. And I often do. I literally say to patients at my ending phrase, like, how good is that? And then we high five. They say, that is good. That's great news, doctor. And we high five. So have a think about how you advocate for lifestyle measures and have a think about literally what they are. And the thing that makes it a bit easier in terms of our job is there's certain things in terms of non-medication treatments for chronic disease that are the same across the board. And it kind of doesn't matter what chronic condition we're talking about. It's all good stuff. So you've probably heard of that acronym SNAP, Smoking, Nutrition, Alcohol, Physical Exercise. Yeah, I do remember using that a lot as a student. The good news is it doesn't really matter what chronic condition you have, be it heart disease, diabetes, asthma. If you smoke less and exercise more, that's going to make your disease better. Mm. So always have that in the back of your head. I actually have changed the acronym myself. So I personally go by one that I invented called SNAPVF, which isn't really a word, but Oh, well, the V and the F at the end is for every patient, I'm thinking about talking to them about smoking, nutrition, alcohol, physical exercise. The V is for vaccinations, mm. which I'll tell you right from the get-go, if you want to win in the exams, nobody says that enough. In fact, most people forget to say vaccinations in their exam answers to conditions. Mm. Uh, so train yourself right from the get-go to advocate for that. And, you know, it is based on evidence. So vaccinations like flu vax is never a bad idea for most of these chronic conditions and the f again stands for my favorite follow-up follow-up and care plans and involvement of allied health and we'll talk a bit more about what that all means in another session but there you go you've just made me think like that is a useful phrase i've had in the past in terms of like um multimodal approaches to chronic conditions yeah and saying like the studies the studies show this yes yes exactly the other, the other thing I've found useful is like, I know you've got this problem and I'm taking it seriously and you've been suffering through this problem for X number of months. Yeah. Yep. And it'd be naive on my part to think I could just quickly fix it with medicines and we need to approach it from lots of different angles. Yes, 100%. Really readjusting like, um, like setting the expectations. Yeah. And like, what I, yes. It'd be naive, like if you're yes. suffering it for months, it'd be naive for me to think I can just get rid of the symptoms totally. But yep. if we approach it from all these different angles... Like we always want to get your minimums, your symptoms under control so that you can do the things you want to do. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree, Esther. And the other thing I like that you implicitly did there is you demonstrate a lot of empathy. You know, I can see that this has been a problem you've been dealing with and suffering with for a while. Mm. And even acknowledging that and employing empathy is therapeutic itself, particularly for these chronic diseases. So well done. Um, you just remind me of another key point is in terms of coming back to phrasing, have a think about how you're going to phrase, I'm going to look something up now. <laughs> because you, you'll be at parties and stuff and your mates will be like, oh, I saw the doctor and like, I don't know what's up with this quack because, you know, I, I told him this is the deal. And the first thing they did was go on to Google. And I was like, Google, I can use Google on my phone. Why am I paying money for this? I think that's something you need to work out right from the get-go, even before day one, is how you're going to phrase, I'm going to look something up now. Coming back to resources, so my favorite one for general practice is the therapeutic guidelines. My other two that I use quite often are the RACGP check program, which is basically questions that they put in their journal to emphasize some of the key learning points from the literature that they produce. And on a side note, they use a lot of that stuff Sometimes, dare I say, word for word for exams as well. So just make sure you're onto that because certainly if you're comfortable with that, you'll 
say I'd say you're more comfortable with the RSAGP exam. No, uh, the other resource that I use a lot is the Royal Children's Hospital. Uh, so they you have really good free online. Literally, you just type in. I literally just type in on my Google search, RCH, and then whatever pediatric condition I need to look up and then go from there. Mm. So with those, because nobody has all the answers. And I find it's a very fine line because patients really appreciate you being honest. Because if you just acted like you knew everything... One day there's going to be something that you don't know. And if you try to, you know, fake your way through it, that's going to destroy the trust. But at the same time, if you act completely like you're not no and frantic and uh, I'm just going to Google everything now because I have no idea and I've not communicated anything to you, then it also doesn't look great. So have a think about how you're going to phrase how you're going to look something up on the computer because they can see what you're doing. They can literally look over your shoulder and see what you're doing. So I, before I turn around to the computer and look something up, I say to the patient, look, these are my thoughts thus far. I don't think it's dot, dot, dot or, hmm, that's a good point. I actually think that the guidelines for this have recently changed or I seem to remember the literature talking about a new drug that's on the market. I just am curious whether that'd be a good fit for you. So have a think about giving a preamble to the patient. So these are my thoughts thus far and I'm not blindly Googling. I'm doing a focused research uh, based on the picture that you've given me mm. and my initial impression. Number one. And then number two, then literally tell them what you're looking at because usually you're not randomly Googling or going onto Reddit to find the advice that you want. You're going to a peer-reviewed database. So I'll literally say, have you heard of the therapeutic guidelines before? Oh no, I haven't, Doc. What's that? Well, actually it's this huge current online database that's compiled all the latest international research by a bunch of Australian experts and put it all into this neat little database. So I can tell you exactly what the most recent international research, so you get the best international care. How good is that? Mm. As a rhetorical question. And they say, that sounds awesome, doc. Let's do it. And then you go do it together. And it's great. The key theme I'm um, getting is basically communicate everything you're doing with yep. the patient. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. And I think we've kind of implicitly covered the, my next point, which was basically you're in your first day or in your first week and you're not sure about something. What do you do next? What are your options? So based on what we've been talking about or your own personal thoughts, Esther, so let's say you get a patient and they come in, they explain a problem and you're either not sure where to go from here in terms of diagnosis or you're not sure where to go from here in terms of management or you just feel like you don't have any idea. What are your options to deal with that? Well, hopefully prior to my first consulting session, I've already had a conversation with my supervisor about um, like their availability to see patients face-to-face -face or to talk on the yep. phone um, in real time. Mm. Yes. So I would think about, is this a patient that I'm worried enough that I want them to examine and assess themselves or I can just discuss yep. the case with um, yeah, and then kind of go from there. Exactly. So I completely agree. So option one is call your supervisor. And to be honest, I would actually err on the side of calling your supervisor for like every patient, particularly in your first week. Mm. And even if it's just phone advice, not necessarily can you come eyeball, but if you do feel like, oh no, can you come eyeball this rash? Because like it's super awkward to describe then don't hesitate to do that either. So option number one is calling your supervisor. Option number two we talked about is consulting the online resources. Mm -hmm. And a side note I just thought there as well, the, the other cool thing about in this day and age, uh, looking up resources and telling the patient how and why you're going to do so is you can then literally print out that article from ETG and give it to them or from the Royal Children's Hospital and give it to them. Mm. And that's a really good way of keeping your patient informed and tied into their own care uh, as well. And option number three in terms of what to do when you don't know what to do is I would say we're right back to point number one of this whole talk is follow up. I mean, because there's a big chance that if you don't know what to do as a general practitioner, well, you kind of do. You never don't know what to do completely. You kind of have at least half an idea what to do in any given situation. But if you don't know to like a more certainty than that on what to do next chances are that no general practitioner or no doctor will at all because it's an undeclared undifferentiated problem in its infancy of stage of severity so no doctor in your stead would know what to do per se so your biggest weapon or tool there is look i've done the things now to keep you safe let's see you in two weeks and we'll go from there and then more information will be available so those are your three options if you don't know what to do Use any combination of look it up online, call your supervisor, follow them up. 
In fact, in your first week, probably do all three for all your patients. <laughs> and that's the thing I'm like slowly learning as well yeah. is like there's no shame bringing them for follow up like even sooner than a week's time. Oh, 100%. Like even just like come yep. back in two or three days. Yes, completely agree. Uh, and that's a good point. Those are just arbitrary numbers I made up in my head. Mm. So if you think they need to be seen sooner or later, go for it. My only other two bits of general advice before we get to the nitty gritty in future episodes this month is basically with regard to billings and getting new patients. Oh, yeah. Getting new patients should absolutely be a goal from day one mm-hmm. for multiple reasons. One, it's good for the business and perpetuity of the practice, uh, but also just as importantly, getting new patients is good for you and your job satisfaction. It just makes life more interesting if you have more patients, you busy yourself, you get involved, you help people, it's great. And number three, importantly, the more patients you see, the more diversity you get. And that is really good for experience, for training and for exams. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how to get new patients. I think the thing with general practice, like we've said, one of the key parts is follow-up. That's your biggest tool. And to be honest, that's the one of the things that the patient likes the most about seeing their general practitioner is once they've found a good one, they want them for life. Cradle the grade for medicine, man. So to that end, quite often patients are a bit reluctant to see a new doctor. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, well, I've found my perfect doctor that knows everything about me why would i go see some random so that can be a bit confronting at the start and what that lends itself to do inevitably is lots of the patients you'll see as a new registrar will either be brand new patients to the clinic slash to town like hey i've just moved from sydney to adelaide so i don't have a doctor here i'll give you a go yeah because you had a good looking profile pic on the company website (laughs) so you're Probably half the patients you'll see will be in that category of new person to town or the practice. And it tends to be a new person to practice or town tend to be younger people, statistically speaking. So they tend to be younger people with no major diseases or at least none that they know about. So it'll be interesting to think about how you're going to deal with that. And then the other, the other demographics I can think of, there's two. So the other one would be the ye oldie patient. So the elderly patient with like 10 billion different chronic diseases that your boss has seen since they were young in and, you know, has treated the whole family, et cetera, et cetera. And so those patients tend to like to stick to the doctor that knows them. But, you know, your boss might be away or their doctor at the practice might be imminently retiring. So they can't always force to see <laughs> see somebody else. Uh, and often the way they'll kind of test the waters with that would be come in. Oh, I don't need you to do anything particularly onerous. I just need you to refill my repeat scripts I get for my chronic diseases every month. And quite often I find that's a wasted opportunity for registrars in that it's a beautiful opportunity to... Uh, do some good medicine and get some new patients. And quite often it's an opportunity missed by new guys who are just like, oh yeah, no worries. All right, here's your script, done. When there's so much more to it that we'll talk about. And the other one that I'm thinking is basically people that come in with acute stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, I can't see my usual doctor because this thing only happened like four hours ago and they're fully booked out, so Mm -hmm. I'll see you. And that one is generally okay because again, new registrars tend to be really good with the acute medicine that needs to go to hospital anyway because that's where they've come from in terms of their previous job. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the other two. So new patients to town who tend to be young and well or old patients who tend to have everything chronically wrong with them but are just coming in for scripts let's start with the older patients with lots of chronic diseases they'll come in for their script and it's literally you can make the console as quick as i'm literally just gonna click the continue button on all these scripts and then press the print button and there we go two minutes flat but again that's kind of a wasted opportunity so with each of these patients that come in I would actually take a moment to ask the patient and check the records as to why they're on those medications in the first place. Mm. The next question, because you find with lots of these patients, you know, they might be on these medicines from day dot. One, because it worked at some point and then they got better, but it wasn't quite communicated to them that they don't need to be on this medication forever. Or otherwise, the guidelines and literature and research have changed in the meantime, but they've been taking these medications for like 20 years. Don't get me wrong here. Like if it's not broken, don't fix it. So if somebody's on an old school tricyclic antidepressant and they swear by this keeps my mood stable, for goodness sake, don't just for the sake of it 
take him off it just randomly because, you know, now the first line is SSRIs instead of tricyclics. I'm more talking about just having a good conversation with the patient. So, you know, they come in, they say, I want these scripts. And you say like, okay, can I ask why you're on these tablets and just make sure they're all on the right indications. Uh, and then I'd actually just do a quick screen for side effects. Uh, are they going well from you? I know tricyclics can cause a dry mouth or weight gain. Have you been having any of that? And it's actually kind of scary the number of new patients that I've come across in my career, uh, well, new patients to me, that have been on these medicines since day dot. And you say, are they going all right? You've got side effects. And they go, no, I hate them because they make me nauseous every day or they make me gain all this weight. And it's just the worst thing ever. And I say, oh, why are you taking them? Oh, because, you know, that's what the doctor said I should do. And then you say to them, well, risk benefit wise, I reckon we can still get the benefit of this effect of this class of medication. But if we use a slightly different one, then you won't get those particular side effects. How's that sound to you? Do you want to give it a go? And quite often I get a lot of success with that. And the patient just absolutely thinks you're the greatest thing on earth and the smartest man alive after that. That's somewhere I would start in terms of people coming in for their repeat scripts because they can't see their usual doctor. It's just, you know, you've got the time anyway. You've got 15 or 30 minutes booked out anyway. So you might as well use that time to do a quick medication review. And you'll be surprised how much good that can do in terms of therapeutic relationship and therapeutic good. Yeah, even just off the top yeah. of my head, I'm thinking about people who have been on aspirin but don't really know why or... Um, totally. sometimes they're like on a dual antiplatelet, but the stent was done like yep. four years ago and you're thinking, uh, yeah. or, or another common one I've come across is people on hormone replacement therapy yep. for menopause. Yep. Um, and whether that can be updated, for example, from cyclical to continuous or whether it could be trialed to be stopped and things like that. Yeah. Yep, so yep. that's a good point. Completely agree. And this is a complete side note now, but something you've just said actually just remind me in terms of your yeah, other big resource for when you don't know or are not sure is conferring with another specialty, conferring with a cardiologist or conferring with a friendly gynecologist if you're not sure about something. And on a side note, but we'll talk about more of this in another episode, one of the great things that you should have a think about already is actually calling particularly private specialists because private specialists want to be your best friend because at the end of the day, you're the gatekeeper to their business. They can only see patients because you're referring them. So they'll often bend over backwards as a resource to help you out. Uh, so in my head, I've made a list over the years of these are the specialists that anytime I call them, they'll stop what they're doing and give me some really sound advice for free on the phone. Uh, and those will be the ones that I'll keep calling and then keep sending patients to. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. So just have a think about that from day one as well. And ask your bosses, like, who are the specialists that you talk to? Do any of them actually even take phone calls from you? And if the answer is yes, get their phone numbers. Shoot them a text, hi, I'm the new GP registrar here. Do you mind if I call you from time to time for phone advice? They'll say yes, it'll be gravy and everybody wins. You, the specialist and the patient. Yeah. Mm. Finishing off the uh, conversation about building your patient base, let's talk briefly about that new patient that comes in. They're new to town, haven't seen anybody at all in terms of doctors in mm -hmm. this town, uh, and they've chosen you, and they tend to be a young, fit person, and they come in, and quite often, in fact, I'm finding it's culturally actually more and more common as the norm now, young, fit people coming into me, and I say, how can I help? And they say, oh, I'm actually doing pretty good, doc, but, you know, in my past experience, it's been impossible to get into a doctor you know, at short notice if they don't already know you. So I just want to induce myself and I'm looking for a long-term doctor for me and my family. Beauty. So how I would approach that, but please have a think about how you would personally do it in your own style is I would actually start off by saying, well, okay, if you don't have anything specific, let's just do a general health check. Or actually they might even volunteer that because that's the other sort of subcategory I get is young fit people coming in and saying like, oh, hey, I'm actually feeling pretty good, but I'm really conscious about health and fitness. So can you uh, give me the blood test to do to make sure I'm healthy? Which is like a super, super vague request actually. <laughs> Or like, can you do the blood tests for like cancers and stuff? Um, which, is, you know, they're very well within their rights to ask because that's a very reasonable question. And if that did exist, like I'll be all and end all one test to figure out all health and cancers, that'd be great. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist. So I'd have a think about from your first week onwards uh, because you're going to get plenty of new patients that are actually pretty well and just want a general health check, what your health check will involve. And the broad strokes of mine are basically, if it's a young fit person coming in for a health check, I get really acquainted with, and it's important that you do as well because they do change from year to year, what the cancer screening guidelines are mm. for bowel cancer, for prostate cancer, for breast cancer, 
for skin cancer and for cervical cancer. Mm. So I would literally in advance in your pre-reading time before you start general practice, just Google Australian guidelines to screening of these cancers and have the chart ready. So when they come in for a health check, you say, oh, well, actually, these are the most up-to-date guidelines. Pull it out of your drawer and read it out together. Based on this, at your age and comorbidities, we should be doing X, Y, Z to screen or you don't need to be screened for this just yet. We will aim to do this in a couple of years. So have a think about cancer screening. Have a think about cardiovascular screening as well is the other big one. There is what's called an absolute cardiovascular risk calculation. Uh, I'll let you look that up on Therapeutic Guidelines, concise article. And basically, the broad strokes I tell the patient is the studies clearly show that if you're over a particular age, if we do some simple tests and examinations like check your weight, check your blood pressure, do your cholesterol level, do your sugar level, do a heart trace or ECG, if we punch all these into a cool algorithm calculator, it will actually, to a pretty accurate degree, predict how likely you are to have a heart attack in the next five years. So if you're looking to stay healthy, that's a pretty good place to start, hey? Mm. And they'll say, yeah, that sounds great, doc. Uh, And, you know, that's great. You've done your good work in terms of preventative medicine and primary care. And also that's a really, yeah, good, good test of the waters between you and the patient and your therapeutic relationship. So in the lead up to your first week, I'd start there. Look up absolute cardiovascular risk calculator. Be acquainted with that. Mm -hmm. Look up the most current cancer screenings and just have that ready. Not necessarily even off the top of your head for your first week, but just have it in a drawer ready to go when that patient comes in. Sounds good. My final bits would be, so I'll just talk very briefly about billing, but that's a whole nother talk in itself that we'll go through in another episode. And then just quickly some other key phrases that I've just thought of just then to finish off. So in terms of billing, I'll tell you right now for your first week, just know that there's one called a 23 and one called a 36. And a 23 is basically billed for when you see a patient and the consult went for less than 20 minutes. So a good portion of your patients, you'll be billing Medicare a 23, a number 23 for your services. Mm-hmm. And a 36 is when you see a patient for more than 20 minutes. Yeah. At its most base form, billing, although it can be quite gigantic, in your first week is as in essence as simple as literally just figuring out have I seen them for more or less than 20 minutes and I'm just going to write that on the slip to give to the receptionist for the billing purposes, 23 or 36. The other important thing to note that might not be that obvious because it's something exclusive general practice like as a hospital doctor you almost don't even need to worry about as a junior doctor in the hospital any kind of billing things or recording anything for billings when you do any kind of procedure Mm -hmm. that's more than a blood pressure basically so anytime you excise a skin lesion or put in an implant on or whatever you then add that billing code onto your 23 or 36 it's not instead of it's in addition to yeah So more monies. (laughs) (laughs) And the only other ones I'll draw attention to, but we'll probably need to talk about in another episode is your chronic disease care plans. They go by many names, your team care arrangements, which is also known as a chronic disease care plan or a, uh, a care plan in general. We'll talk a bit more about what that means, but have that conversation with your supervisor and even have a bit of pre-read of what that actually is. And that's a 721 or 723 or both the 721, 723. And in a nutshell, what that means is you've identified a patient with a chronic disease that needs your input as a doctor, as well as two other health practitioners out of specialist doctors and allied health. The other requirement as per Medicare is that it's all written up in a nice, neat, written document. So the advantage to the patient is literally all their healthcare needs, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological, are all written up in a paper document, Mm -hmm. which is very easy for them to look at and communicate to other practitioners if they rock up in ED or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the other advantage to that is through that scheme, Medicare, so the federal government, will subsidize five allied health visits for them per year. Yeah. Which actually racks up. So that's a really good idea. So have a think with any patient you see. Admittedly, they can only have it done once per year. So it's not a frequent thing that you can do. But if they're a brand new patient who doesn't have a regular GP and nobody currently looks after their chronic disease on a regular basis, then put your hand up for putting them on a care plan, Mm -hmm. billing a 721-723 and getting them access to that particular care. Mm -hmm. 
The similar one that I would be very mindful of even from day one is the mental health care plan. It's a sort of similar scheme. So anybody that has a chronic mental health condition like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and needs to see either a psychologist or a accredited mental health social worker for psychotherapy. If they get signed up to what's called a mental health care plan, I think it's got a couple other names that are synonymous as well, a mental health care plan. Then similarly, kind of like the chronic disease one, they will get access to, and it escapes me for now because I've actually spent the last 12 months doing exclusively anesthetics and no actual general practice work. I also think the number of subsidized visits changed during COVID and I think it might be changing back to what it was Oh, touche. Okay, there you go. But essentially, you get a certain number of subsidized psychotherapy Exactly right, visits. yes. Yeah. So it's very advantageous to, out, and particularly with you being a new registrar, you'll actually go through quite a few of these because unfortunately, it tends to be the younger demographic that gets a lot of mental health conditions statistically. And, you know, lots of these patients will be physically well and there is stigma out there. So it will be that they won't necessarily have communicated that they've got issues with their mental health going on then you'll be the first person as the new doctor in town or the new doctor in the practice that they'll come to as a young, cool new GP. Uh, So you'll get a fair few of these patients. So have a good think about, in addition to optimizing their lifestyle and medication, can they benefit from a mental health care plan? And if so, put them on one and bill for a 2715 is the number. And incidentally, anytime you see them for a more than 20 minute consult about their mental health, put in the number 2713 instead of a 36. Realistically, it's the same thing, but it just sort of helps delineate if it's a mental health thing for basically auditing purposes later with Medicare. So those would be the main billing codes to just at least be aware of in your first week. And then as you get better week by week by week and more confident, you'll find there's plenty more codes out there that you'll have access to. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Final words from me. Again, it's all about phrasing. So some other key phrases that I thought helped me in my first week, we talked about how to introduce yourself, how to phrase when you're looking something up or not sure of the answer, which, you know, probably not a reflection on you. It's just you being safe. Uh, or just anybody in your position would be a bit bamboozled by this uh, diagnostic complexity. Uh, Other key phrases to have in mind would be, and this comes back to, I think you mentioned you're a bit nervous about time efficiency, and that's not just you, that's like all GPs, not even the registrars, everybody's sort of mad about keeping on schedule and lots of GPs go over because we care. So have a think about the following phrases in terms of time management. And what I think absolutely kills me from time to time, much less now now that I've thought about how I'm going to phrase it, is the patient that comes in, they're like, oh, I just want this lump on my toe check. You're like, okay, no worries. And you spend the whole 15 minute appointment talking about their toe and reassuring them that it's all good. And they're pretty happy with that. And it's only when the clock strikes 14 minutes and 30 seconds and you've only got 30 seconds left. And they say like, Oh, yeah. Also, I've got this really bad chest pain. What should I do about that? And you're like, oh, my gosh, like far out. Like this is going to burn at least another 20 to 30 minutes potentially. And I only have 30 seconds. So to mitigate that from the get go, I would have a think about how you're going to phrase triage right from the start. So me personally, I bring the new patient in. I introduce myself. I'll say, how can I help you? And they'll say, oh, I want to talk about my sore toe Mm -hmm. as an example. And then I'll say, we can absolutely, sorry, the royal we, I can absolutely help you with your sore toe. And I do want to hear more about that. Just so I know though, is there anything else you want to talk about today? So my big advice would have a think about the phrasing and don't get sucked in in the first five seconds. Because I've found since I've done that, don't get sucked into the trap of they want to talk about their toe. Okay, let's take a history about their toe straight from the get-go. I would have a think about how you're going to phrase like, yep, I do want to hear about your toe. However, what other things would you like to talk about today? And if they say nothing but the toe, great, spend 15 minutes on the toe. If they want to talk about other things, at least you have in your head, I can now triage, oh, let's talk about the chest pain first. Or, oh, you want to talk about several different things. I'll be honest, I want to do right by you. So this is going to take more than the 15 minute appointment. Let's aim to book another one ahead of time. But in the meantime, which things, like which two things do you want to talk about today in detail? Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Yep. Similarly, think about how you want to end the consult because sometimes it's really hard. Uh, My advice would be, 
if you feel you need to run over, run over. Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal. You, you bill a 36, it's not a big deal. You may run late with the patient's you know, after that, but at the same time, most of it, when you get good of it, it kind of evens out because some of those patients will take less than 15 minutes that they've been allotted. Some of those patients will take more. It kind of all evens out. So as an example, you know, if you, because that's one of the other difficult things about general practice is you don't know, you literally don't know what's going to come through the door. Any other specialty, they have a nice little referral letter saying this person has this problem. That's why they're seeing you today. So immediately, cognitively, you're in tune with that. Whereas with general practice, you have no idea what they're going to say when they sit down. So the number of times I've had young dude comes, sit down. How can I help you? I'm thinking of killing myself or I don't want to be here. And immediately you're like, damn, this is going to take more than 15 minutes. And so it should. So if your gut feel is, I need to take more than 15 minutes, take more than 15 minutes. If you need to take more than 30 minutes, take more than 30 minutes. However, the thing I find in terms of efficiency that can also be a bit tough is when you feel you have given the problem enough address, but at the same time, the conversation is continuing. Or, comma, sometimes you feel like I know enough about what you're trying to tell me and I do want to move on to the next aspect, which is examination, and I want to allow enough time for a decent examination. So have a think about how you're going to phrase to interrupt. Because there's a lot of difference between interrupting, so it sounds like you're indifferent, like, okay, shut up now, Mm -hmm. versus, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mr. Jones, but so I don't forget later, can I please ask you now, dot, dot, dot. And then that would be a very polite and concise and actually good medicine way of re-steering the question towards salient features of the history. Mm. And that's pretty much it. So that's pretty much all I had to say about your first week of general practice. So to sum it all up, we've talked for a little bit. So let's sum it all up. So sum it all up. Number one, follow up, follow up, follow up. Number two, phrasing, phrasing, phrasing. Number three, get prepared. Get your templates in. Get in with the staff. Get friendly with the staff right from the get-go and you'll be fine. Mm, mm -hmm. Sounds good. Anything else that you've been reminded of at this point or you're ready to go get them? I think so. So day one, I'll introduce myself to everybody, establish my escalation pathways with my supervisor and non-supervisor GPs, read up on some of those common acute and chronic presentations and work on some useful phrases to um, redirect the conversation. Exactly. Cool. All right. Well, all the best for your first week, everybody that's listening. And I reckon you'll just make it your own. We've all got different styles and that's the cool part of general practice and being a doctor. So, you know, own this, man, own it. And we'll see you in the next couple of episodes where we're going to talk a bit more in depth about the medical parts of things, some of the awkward parts of things, some of the billing parts of things and some of the questions that have like 10 billion different answers. Like how do I deal with somebody that's on chronic opioids as an example? All right, I'll keep you updated about how my first few weeks go. Yeah, please do. Thanks very much for joining us on the show, Esther. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Catch you next time. You've been listening to GP Life Hacks with Dr. David Lamb. Music by Nathan Huiyi. Happy to say she still is mine.